0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. The Mahabharata is one of the central works of Indian literature. Its characters, lessons, and tropes are widely known and referenced in Indian popular culture, literary discussions, and political debate. And like all classic works, it's ripe for reinterpretation, deconstruction, and adaptation. One such reinterpretation is Song of Draupadi, written by Ira Mukoti and published by Aleph Book Company last year. Ira's book puts the Mahabharata's female characters front and center, focusing the story around their struggles and their strengths in fighting for themselves and the men they have to care for. Ira Mukherjee is, one that is the author of several books about India and Indian women throughout history, including Heroines, Powerful Indian Women of Myth and History, Daughters of the Sun, Empresses, Queens, and Begums in the Mughal Empire, and Akbar, the Great Mughal. I'm known today by my friend Miriam Hayter. Miriam, could you say a few words about yourself?
2: Hi, hey Nicholas, and hi, Ira. Um, I'm Maryam. I'm a researcher and a writer and spoken word artist from Singapore, and it's lovely to be with Nicholas on this.
1: Today, the three of us will talk about the Mahabharat and how Song of Draupadi reinterprets its story and central characters. So, Ira, thank you so much for joining me and Mariam today. For those of us who have not had the chance to read or experience in whatever form the Mahabharat, Could you explain how central the work is to Indian culture and how it is quote unquote normally portrayed in adaptations?
0: Yes. Hello, Nicholas. Hello, Maryam. I'm really happy to be here with you today. Um, The Mahabharata is, you know, an extremely, extremely unique, uh, fascinating and uh, groundbreaking text, uh, especially for Indian people. Um, Since Hinduism is not uh, a religion of the book you know unlike Christianity which has the Bible or Islam which has the Quran so in Hinduism there is no set of uh, rituals or uh, there's no set way to be a Hindu really you know um, so people use different texts one of the main ones therefore being the Mahabharat because it's this very complex story about basically two warring families two sets of cousins who are fighting over a piece of land really but it is a essentially about the right way to live your life as a, you know, as a um, virtuous person, whether you your duty as a king or as a woman, as a wife, as a husband, as a son, as a daughter. So it's an extremely useful text for people to use when they want to know certain things about how to live their lives or to entertain themselves. Uh, In fact, you know, we have the four Vedas, which are these very obscure texts written in Sanskrit, which are not available to most people. You know, most people don't read Sanskrit and do not have access to these texts. In the past when they were not translated. So the Mahabharata is often called the fifth Veda because it tells you essentially the same sort of things that are uh, available in the Vedas, but in a much more accessible way. In fact, they are said to be the Vedas, the fifth Veda, which is particularly useful for women and sudras so you know in a way they're saying this is fine for people of slightly limited intelligence such as women and untouchable people because it's it's a simplified way of learning about the world and your role in it and your duties and your responsibilities so actually it's something that we learn in india not in a fixed way, as I said, uh, but it's almost through osmosis. You know, from the time you are born, almost there'll be somebody who's telling your a story—a grandmother, an aunt, a father. Somebody will sit you on their lap and tell you some stories pertaining to a particular incident in your life, and they'll be like, "Oh, well, if you go to the Mahabharata I can give you this example. You know, this is—and if you were this is what Gargi did in this situation. This is what Draupadi did. This is what yudhishthira did. This is how he was a great king, and this is these are the virtues you, you must look up to." And so throughout. our lives we are told these stories and they become part of this myth making you know these uh, th- these foundational stories that we tell ourselves uh, as as a family and as uh, as a society and we you know reinforce it throughout our lives and with these exchanges that we have with each other so it is an extremely popular text even today you know unlike some of the say the greek myths which are very much in the realm of fantasy and myths. But in India, uh, the Mahabharata and even the Ramayan, the other great epics, are very much part of our everyday lives and they continue to be reinterpreted on the stage, uh, on the screen, in, on the television, in stories. Um, you know, it is a very, very, um, uh, it, it is a text which is very much alive in people's imagination even today, which is why it remains a very important text to keep challenging once in a while uh, because it's been thousands of years since it was written and so, uh, you know, we, we need to keep reinterpreting it as society changes.
2: Actually, you, know, you you said something really important, and I was going to come to that a while later. But the reinterpretations and the imaginations have happened in the Indian media, and and you know it's it's very popularly known that the Mahabharata and Darshan was the one that was telecasted, and the entire like streets and neighborhoods would be empty at the time, right? Um, even then, the interpretations were very much similar to what people had heard as stories, So people had heard, like you said, in their homes. What made you choose Draupadi and Mahabharata, firstly to write a fictional account and then reimagine it in the times that we live in today?
0: Um, well, you know, as I, I was telling you, uh, it, it, the Mahabharata is a text which is referred to almost as if it was veridic, as of, almost as if it really happened. Um So you will often have people like I read uh, a ruling by a judge um, some time ago who was ruling on the question of divorce. A woman was seeking divorce uh, from her husband because she did not want to travel to the city to which her husband had been, um, you know, he had been transferred and she wanted her own career. And the, the judge said, well, a woman needs to be like Sita. She needs to sublimate her own desires to her husband's to be a good wife. Uh, and so therefore divorce is granted because this is, uh, you know, uh, this is not acceptable that a woman would not want to follow uh, her husband in life. So I found that really strange, you know, that in, in the 21st century, a judge would quote Sita, a mythological character from many thousands of years ago, and use her example to, for everyday women. Another thing that happens, uh, you know, routinely is that we are told as women uh, to obey the Lakshman Rekha. Uh, a politician in the 21st century was berating uh, college-going women because there had been some incidents in their hostel. And she told them, you should create a Lakshman Rekha for yourselves. You should not go out at night uh, as young women and put yourself in danger. You should observe the Lakshman Rekha. You know, the Lakshman Rekha is from the, the Ramayana, another ancient epic. Uh, and so I." I was thinking about these ideas, about how the fact that these mythological characters are offered to us as realistic examples of how to be women in the 21st century. Um, and, and so this was something that I um, that I wanted to challenge. Because if we look at the texts themselves, um, they have... You know, you probably all know that the texts were actually created in oral form. These were not written down initially. They were recited to each other. Uh, And this happened over a period of, say, 500 years. So you can imagine the layers uh, of additions and uh, excisions and reinterpretations and narrative uh, sort of, uh, you know, flow that happened um, so that the stories changed a lot over those 500 years by the time they were finally written down. Uh, And so I thought it would be interesting to look at some of the Court uh, stories that 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 existed perhaps right in the beginning before all these various interpretations by essentially brahmins because that's how it happened. Now we often talk about the voices of women, for example, but that's actually a sort of female ventriloquism because there were no women writing these stories; these were men imagining women. So I wanted to uh, sort of put a slightly critical light on this um, this this whole aspect uh, and and understand how Draupadi could still remain relevant to us today a little bit in opposition to sita uh, because sita is from the from the ramayana another epic is somebody who is offered to us constantly uh, as an example of perfect womanhood um, we are told to emulate her, uh, you know, as much as possible. We are not given actual heroines from his, from history. We are not told uh, to be like particular historical figures, for example. We are told to be like mythological figures. Um, so I thought, in juxtaposition to Sita, I felt that Draupadi uh, would be a much more inspiring example uh, for for women today. Um, uh, there is this uh, there is this sense, you know, in the Mahabharata, um, that the men are, are driving the action, but essentially the motivation behind the actions is women's desires. Um, but because this is a very complex story and the men are shackled by their own needs, by their own uncertainties, by their own indecision, um, there is a tension which arises between the need for men to, pro- to provide that protection for women and, and the fact that they are not able to provide that protection. And Zopradi is a great example of somebody uh, whose men entirely fail fail her. She has this descriptor in the Mahabharata, which I find a very a terrible and fearful one. It's She's called Natavati Anathavat, which means husbanded yet alone. Now, we know that Draupadi is somebody who has something of an excess of men in her life. Uh, right from the time she's born, she has a famous king for a father. She has a twin brother when she's born. She has many husbands. You know, she's a famous example of polyandry. She has five husbands and she has five sons. And yet none of these men, Later in her life, uh, is able to protect her, and she says so. She says it to the god Krishna. She says, I have no sons, no brothers, no fathers, no husbands, even you, Krishna, as a free from all grief, you stood by while evil men insulted me. So she is very aware of this failing of the men to protect her, and she is able to claim a role for herself in protecting herself. And so, I found that very inspiring for women today that we needn't always. Um, need to rely on husbands, on brothers, on fathers, that we can create our own destiny uh, and that does not make us essentially un-Indian or unfeminine because we have had this great example from the epics, uh, you know, to sort of inspire us. So that was really uh, part of my thinking when I started uh, looking at stories that really I started because I wanted examples for young women in the 21st century today. I was sort of um, uninspired and a little put off by the way in which women were offered to us as examples. And I thought, that, you know, how do how does a young modern 21st century woman relate to these, you know, uh, figures who are goddesses, who are so aloof? Uh, and I wanted to make these characters believable, authentic uh, in their own, you know, uh, historical past.
2: Absolutely. In fact, um, I, I'm so glad that you, you know, gave us that kind of an understanding because a lot of times the, the, examples or the kind of stories that we want to believe when it comes to portrayal of women um, emerge only from the texts that have been the most ancient and we don't have enough interpretations or even accessibility to those kinds of texts and understandings and one of the things that I actually I think Ira over the years I've also understood is that there is no black and white when it comes to character definitions especially when we are you know histories um, as old as you know thousands of years. Um, you know, and while you were talking about Draupadi, and and this is something that I was curious to ask you is Satyavati's character. Um, and you know, it it kind of initially reminded me of uh, the character of Supanaka from Ramayana, because when we study or you know even read Supanaka's character, it's it's absolutely considered like the anti um, an antagonist. Um, it's how it has been portrayed and. Satyavati is a remarkable character in the way she channels her, her. You know, she knows the the what are her limits. She also understands how much power she has, and she negotiates that to maintain her own, you know, position. So, could you share more about that? Yes, no, she's an
0: extremely fascinating character, and I think next to Draupadi, she's probably the one who drives, uh, my book, uh, you know, the most because uh, she's there right from the beginning. Uh, and what is fascinating about, this, uh, about the character of Satyavati is that she's one of the few non-royal women who have such a role. You know, we often have elite women, elite princesses who are able to exert some sort of, um, you know, agency in their lives. But we have Satyavati, who is a fisherwoman, who was born to the fisher caste, to a community, living pretty much on the outskirts of civilized society, you know. Uh, and she is at a very young age seduced by... A, a sadhu, uh, Parashar, who is famous, a very famous sadhu, he has a famously bad temper, he is famously powerful as well, and she is seduced by this uh, sadhu, and she bears a son, this, uh, the famous, the, the person the son who grows up to become the famous Vyas. Um, and all this happens to her, to her when she is absolutely vulnerable, without power. You know, she is somebody uh, of no consequence at all. And one would imagine that having all this happen to her uh, would completely crush her and we would hear no more of her. But she becomes a central figure. And I find that extraordinary that she's able to use what is a weakness, a child out of wedlock, uh, and use him uh, later on. And not only that, she uses it to shape her destiny when she meets Shantanu. And she is able to, when he is desperate to marry her, she is able to move out of the line of success Uh, 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 the the Prince Devavrata, who was actually the only Kuru prince that we have. You know, if he had become prince and he had become king, we would have had no Mahabharata because there would have been no wrangling. But she was able to move him completely out of uh, the line of succession because she wanted her own sons to become king uh, in his place. So she manages to extract this promise from her husband. And then she spends the rest of her life ensuring that there are sons born to her sons. Because she realizes the importance, uh, you know, she's very pragmatic. Uh, she understands the importance of sons uh, in this, uh, you know, early world that uh, we are looking at. Uh, she doesn't try to fight that or go off on her own, uh, you know, carve a place for herself. She knows that this is a way for her to exercise almost boundless power is to be the mother of sons, a mother of uh, sons who will be kings. Uh, and knowing this, uh, you know, in a very clear minded way, uh, she Controls everybody's destiny around her, Uh, whether it is the abduction of Amba, Ambika, Ambalika. You know, during the swayamvar, they are abducted by Bhishma. You know, he was not part of; he was not invited. was not invited to the swayamvar. They were not meant to be there, but they kidnapped these women. Uh, So she has them brought to her palace and wed to her sons, uh, forcibly, really, uh, because she wants uh, her own sons to have sons. Um, And we see that throughout uh, the the story that even when the the other men are not very. about how to go about this business because these, these uh, princesses are not able to conceive. She has no qualms in calling her son, her earlier son, Vyas, and saying he will impregnate uh, these women, you know, he will use this uh, uh, this system of niyoga, which was still acceptable during the Mahabharata, where, you know, if you're unable to conceive a son, you could lie with another man. Uh, so she calls in Vyas her own son from this earlier time and uses him and, uh, you know, uh, has her daughters-in-law impregnated by him. So I just find that the way in which she is able to mold her destiny from just this poor, vulnerable fisherwoman to really becoming the matriarchs of the Kuru is something which is fascinating. And, uh, you know, not, as you were saying, it's not black and white. Um, you know, she uses the tools that she has. Uh, she uses whatever power and she, you know, scrabbles after that power and uh, is able to achieve a great deal uh, from, from some pretty... Um, you know, from beginnings which would
2: not have promised such a destiny at all. So I find it very fascinating. It is. Um, In fact, it kind of allows people to think about how women in that time as well were actually negotiating the powers they had. You know, they were never really at the mercy of the men they were married to or they were daughters of. Um, And another aspect of it is also that I feel at some point the women were the ones who were writing their own destinies only no one was really kind of Recording it that way, I think oral storytelling also has that problem that who is telling the story matters a lot. Um, and and one of the striking um, aspects while I was reading that your book was also that the servitude class, the women who were accompanying these elite women, the women who were accompanying the princesses and you know the queen subsequently from one kingdom to the other, what was their story? You know, um, how how are we reimagining that? major part of the society um, and understanding how they live their lives. Yes. I thought that was um, something that was
0: essential for me to highlight uh, because as you were saying, it depends. I mean, we have uh, histories, we have stories, we have epics, but as we were saying, absolutely correctly, it depends on who is writing those stories, and it's almost never women, and it is almost, and it is certainly never the disenfranchised women, you know, so we will never have their actual voices. It, you know, it, it is wishful thinking to think that we will find the text which actually records those voices. But we do know that there was um, uh, servitude in, in these times that we are talking about. We know that slaves were kept, and that slaves, women, slave women were kept, and that during wars, um, your enemies, women folk were enslaved. This is a fact. So I wanted to just bring up slightly in the background because, you know, I don't have much accurate evidence, let us say, for how their lives were led. But I did want them to be at least shadow figures in the background of the lives of these elite women and these elite men so that, the readers, as they read the story, just stumble upon these, uh, you know, small lives in a way. So you can see that all these women had their slave girls who accompanied them. They have to leave their own families behind. Uh, there's no choice in this for them. Uh, and the consequences of 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 their lives. And for, for example, we see that sometimes they are able to shape their destinies as well. So when... Um, Amba and Ambika have to, uh, you know, undergo niyoga with uh, with Vyasa. Um, uh, the princesses at some point, are, you know, are fed up of this and they call their maidservant. And the maidservant is very happy to do this for She's very happy to lie uh, with Vyasa because she knows what a powerful sadhu is. And she knows uh, how much it will change her life to become the mother of a, of a son by a Brahmin. So she lies with him and has a son. Uh, Vidur who uh, then becomes quite uh, important as uh, the giver of advice. So we see how even these extremely disenfranchised women, uh, you know, nonetheless exercise some power whenever they can. So I really wanted to bring that into the story, uh, not in a very obvious way, because there, you know, they there were certainly uh, figures who did not have a great deal of power, but they were there. And also figures like, for example, Hidimbi, you know, this um, uh, woman in the forest that Bhim um, has. His son with her, you know, has uh, she's almost like his first uh, first wife really, and he has Katodkat, his son with her. Uh, there was an in, there's an interesting aspect in the Mahabharata where there's a great deal of um, caste consciousness, uh, and this is a story about Brahmins and Kshatriyas, the upper castes, whereas the lower castes are completely written out of the stories, and they, in fact they're written about um, in pretty. Um, detrimental term so if uh, there's a great othering of people who are say from the forest forest folk uh, so Hidimbi and Hidimba this is what they are they are people who live in the forest you know they are a clan of the forest. And they are written about in very malicious terms. Um, so, she is, Hidimbi is discarded very easily by Kunti, you know, when she needs to keep her sons uh, cohesive and together and united. Um, so, we see the way in which non-Kshatriyas and non-upper caste people are treated, uh, you know, very dismissively. And this was something I wanted to bring up, uh, too and Kunti, uh, when in the house of luck when she knows that the house is going to be set on fire and there is a plot for her and her sons to be killed in that fire, she very easily asks this woman and her five sons, and uh, just an uh, you know an insignificant woman, a woman of no outside you know a very lower caste woman, she very easily invites this woman into her own house to take the place of Kunti and her sons so that she is burned. They, they are all burnt up in lieu of the Pandavas and I found it quite shocking the way in which uh, it did not occur to Kunti really to think too much about the fate of this woman and her son. So it tells us something about how in the times of the Mahabharat, how caste was intrinsic to the whole uh, cultural context, you know. And so I wanted to bring out these slightly minor points uh, into the story as well, you know, without belaboring the point, I was hoping that the reader would stumble upon it and and think for themselves.
1: So there were a few kind of Bits of the story that you mentioned that kind of lead on to my next question, you know, um, stories like, uh, beam's first wife and child kind of, and I was struck. When I thought the book, you know, all the, all the male characters in the book, they're all obviously quite powerful. They're all, you know, in, in the Well, most of them are, are in elite positions. Um, they're quite violent at um, oftentimes seeming quite uncaring to the, to the, to the, to the feelings and views of the female characters. They also seem to be, for lack of a better term, I'm just, I was struck sometimes at how useless they seemed. They always seemed like we're we're we can't do this, we're bound by tradition, even though where this is clearly harmful for everybody, but I guess I've promised this, so I have to do it. Um like like for example, how how Dropity ends up having five husbands. Um everyone's like, well, I guess we gotta follow through with this. And it, it just it just it's I I wonder if you might kind of talk through Um, you know how the how this reinterpretation, this adaptation of the Mahabharata, kind of then casts the male characters in a new light as well.
0: Yes, um, yes, yeah. I've had a few people telling me the, you know, remarking in the same way about how useless the men seem. Um, I think it comes from you know that earlier point I was making that uh, the Mahabharat is a text about an avatar, you know, Krishna, and about men who are on earth, um, who are driving the action, but who are driven. their motivations are the desires of women and these two are not in sync and so we have this uh, this tension between the women's desires and the men's ability to protect these women and to actually um fulfill their desires uh, there's this dissonance uh, you know between these two things uh, and i think this results in a lot of uncertainty ambiguity in the men's mind in indecision um i remember the, of course the very famous scene um in the gambling hall where um The Kauravs are insulting Draupadi and the, the, you know, all five Pandavas have already lost themselves. They've lost their kingdom and now they're staking Draupadi. And I was really, again, taken aback at how much they uh, prevaricate, how much they sort of, uh, you know, just hedge around the issue when Draupadi, uh, you know, sort of looks at them and appeals to them none of them comes to her rescue Yudhishtha says it is his duty as a king as a gambling man as a, it is his oath this is what he has has sown uh, sworn to do, Arjun when Arjun is appealed to, he, is, he uses uh, the rule of having to abide by his bigger brother uh, so it, it becomes sort of absurd, only Bhim is able to say bring me fire that I may set uh, fire to the hands of Yudhishthira who gambled away our wife, but even him it is you know, it remains uh, words only, he's not able to do anything this great, passionate, angry man even he is not able to come to his wife's rescue because they are so bound up in this intricate world web of rules and hierarchy and um, it just seemed to me that it shackles the men. Uh, it makes them unable to take decisions. Uh, even towards the end when they're deciding on whether or not to go to war, they are entering Uh, beating about the bush they're endlessly talking with Krishna about ways in which to avoid war they're willing to settle for less and less land, for less and less honour as long as they don't have to go to war and it is Draupadi who becomes so enraged uh, you know and she appeals to Krishna and she says you promised me retribution for my humiliation, you promised me vengeance and I will have vengeance and I just thought it was so I mean, there was something that was so um, vivid in the way in which these women know what they want. Draupadi wants vengeance. She doesn't really look, much beyond that. She says, I am the daughter of a king. I am the wife of kings. It is my right to have vengeance. It's very clear for her. I think if she could have worn weapons, she would have rode into battle herself. Uh, there's much less doubt and there's much less beating about the bush, uh, about what needs to be done to 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 save your honor, to get what's due to you. Uh, and so I thought this juxtaposition was interesting. And to me, the more I looked at this, the more I found that the men seemed unable to come to a decision because as you were saying they are so bound by these many laws which are sometimes contradictory uh, so when they all appear before uh, when uh, Arjun wins Draupadi at the swayamvar and they they come to Kunti in her hut and say look mother look and look what we have won today look what Arjun has won today and she says you must share it between the five of you and then Bhim uh, you know appeals to her and say, how can you say that? How can we share a woman? She's not arms. She's not, uh, you know, some sort of offering that we can share amongst ourselves. Uh, And Kunti, again, uses some, you know, very obscure law and says, uh, what has been said by a mother cannot be unsaid. So it just sometimes seems that it reaches a level of absurdity in justifying strange decisions, which certainly go against women's welfare, or just to promote more, uh, you know, what seems to me indecision. Uh, You know, it becomes philosophical ramblings at some point, but so much so that it just incapacitates the men and they are unable to take the story forward without a woman standing up and uh, becoming the driving force of, of the
2: action once again. Um, you actually kind of touched upon the next question I was going to ask, um, in more for, I would say, the audience largely that would be listening to the podcast. I mean, understanding the Swayambar tradition, um, understanding the the significance of it. But for me, the ironical bit about the Swayambar, and you were just mentioning that uh, a few seconds ago, is um, Swayambar essentially was something which allowed the woman to choose whom she wanted to be with. But the irony is that in most of the circumstances, it wasn't really the way it ended up. You know, um, the, the, the swamber was something that was just, it seemed more of like a, a farce of sorts, uh, where the woman thought she would be choosing the person she wanted to be with. But in reality, it was much more difficult. And it was, again, bound by the traditions, bound by the patriarchal expectations. Um, so share some more light on that, actually. Yes. So actually, you know, we think today when we look back on it, we think,
0: uh, oh, so the woman had, uh, you know, had choice. She had agency. She was able to choose (laughs) the man she wanted to live with. Maybe she was in love with this man, you know. Um, But, you know, romantic love is very much a 20-year 20th and 21st century concept. Um, In earlier times, it was much more pragmatic and, you know, political decisions were made around these marriages. Uh, So even when we think that swayamvar was about the woman having choice, actually, it was really not. Uh, There were already many restrictions when uh, a swayamvar was organized. So the father would send out invitations, uh, and it would be to a very, very reduced and restricted list of men who were considered um, suitable for, for this bride if she was a princess, especially? And remember that these girls would be very, very young, maybe 40, maybe 15, pre pubertal or just pubertal. And the men could be 30, 40, even 50 years old, you know. Um, so you would have this very, uh, a particular list of men, which was um, which would have been chosen by the father, so very much you know the patriarchy would have put this into place, uh, and there was often an understanding that you will this is the most likely candidate and you will marry this person. Um, so the, I, the the thought of this woman going in there into the swayamvar and falling in love instantly with a man that she has never seen before, certainly never talked to before, is is really you know quite absurd. Um, um, And moreover, we see in the Mahabharata that it doesn't even happen in this sort of idyllic way that we assume that the woman will go around the court and look at all the faces and put her garland around the man who looks, you know, most handsome, maybe, or, you know, uh, who pays to her. We see that there are many ways in which this is this is uh, circumvented, and even this small amount of agency is taken away from the woman. So, like uh, in Amba, Ambika and Ambalika's case, as I was telling you, uh, Bhishma actually comes and kidnaps these women from the middle of this court where the, all these men are assembled. He just grabs them and takes them away. You know, he abducts them. And when he is challenged upon upon this, he says, "Well, it is one of the accepted ways for kingly men to to marry women, and this is true on in in the laws." It stated that one of the ways in which marriage is possible is by ravishing a woman you know basically abducting and raping a woman is acceptable is acceptable uh, it's the least uh, desirable form but it is still there amongst in the in the law books um, so very little to do with love and choice yet again uh, with draupadi's case now often you had to win a challenge to win the woman so again it's not the woman choosing at all. It is a, a, a sort of ritual that the man has to perform to get, to get the bride. So Draupadi is won by Arjun, but then she ends up becoming the, you know, the wife to, to the five men. Um, so yes, Swayamvar, we think about it today as um, something which seems to give us a better alternative to say an, an arranged marriage that we have in our society today, but, but really it wasn't so in, in real life.
2: Yeah, and I think, again, the, in Amba Ambalika and ambika Swayamba, the, the casteist undertone is also there, right? Like, where, where I remember him saying that the Kshatriya has the right to um, to come and, and take the bride. And I, I was, yeah, particularly uh, focusing on that kind of understanding that has been built, I think, across centuries. Um, and, yeah, so as a final question from my end, um, era, You've written mostly, you know, historical characters in the past. You've studied these women um, through different centuries and and you've you've gone in depth to understand their lifestyles. Now that you've you've studied the Mahabharata in that kind of a you know, I would say historical way as well, taken a more research oriented approach towards it, is there a common threat that you identified through all your female characters and that you've written about? Yeah, and- that's
0: that's actually a great question, you know, and um, there is. So when I looked at all the historical women, uh, and then I compare them with the mythological ones, uh, you see a great diversity in these women, a great diversity in the way in which they were able to be heroic, the way in which they will be able to be role models, whether it was as, uh, you know, bhakti singers, whether it was as princesses, whether it was as leaders in battle, you know, there were many, many ways for them to be heroic women. But Essentially, what happens to them, and the common thread that I found, at least through my research and the way in which I interpreted them, the way in which I wanted to bring them alive again in the twenty-first century, was that over the centuries, whether these were women who lived, you know, two hundred years ago or two thousand years ago, the same process of deification happens to all these women. So slowly over the centuries, through Brahminical reinvention, through the patriarchy, uh, wanting to take these extraordinary lives, these luminous and vibrant women, and make them fit into a mold of acceptable Brahminical uh, womanhood, you find the same sort of whitewashing that happens to their lives. So by the end of the way in which they're reinterpreted, now in the 20th and 21st century, they're almost identical to each other. They are are, they almost all become this symbol of uh, upper caste Brahminical womanhood. You know, they are uh, they are almost divine. They they do not utter words in anger. Um, they are able to control themselves. Uh, you know, all the virtues of a classical pativrat comes out in these women even if they were extremely different sorts of women to begin with even Draupadi, if we look at the way she was portrayed you know in television you know in recent years uh, she's even physically uh, from being this dark, lustrous, beautiful woman. She's celebrated for being a dark woman. This is something that, I, you know, people think it's a minor point. It's very important. We have the self-loathing in India for, for our color. We think darker colors are not as attractive. But we forget that Draupadi was a famously dark and beautiful woman. And if you look at how she's portrayed now, it's mostly, you know, Punjabi fair actresses who, pay, who portray her, and all her jagged edges are scuffed away. And that happens to every single woman, even historical women that I've looked at. Mirabai, you know, who sang songs in the 16th century about leaving your in-laws, you know, if they were oppressing you about issues uh, to criticize this um, practice of natal alienation, of sending very young girls far away to get married away from their, their own home so that they had no, uh, you know, backup, no support system. She criticized this so much so she wrote things which were really critical of society Uh, but we forget those sort of you know incendiary messages and we kind of think of her as this very godly almost semi-divine woman singing her songs peacefully you know like this Uh, so this is the common thread that runs through women's stories that no matter what they started out as being no matter how untidy their lives how jagged their edges they end up being a symbol of perfect Indian womanhood
2: Mm. thank you so much Ira, Actually, Ira, for, for saying especially the complexion part because again this was something that I was observing through the, the book and it reads like almost a play you know, it's, it's a curtain fall on one character and then it rises again so thanks so much for you know, really highlighting these, these nuances and um, I'm sure the book is going to be one of the most uh, well read books um, especially because it's written for such the, in such a right time thank you thank you so much
1: so, I'd like to kind of end our conversation of the book by kind of returning to the idea of um, the Mahabharata as a as, as as kind of reinterpreting the Mahabharata. Um, you know, I think adapting, transforming, you know, classical work literature is is a problem moved by many artists. I mean, sorry, by, by many authors. Um, you know, how many times does Shakespeare get reinterpreted? How many times does Journey to the West in China get reinterpreted? Um, and and so we think. What do you think we we gain when or what, gain when we cast any classical work and any tradition um, in a new light, whether in a feminist light or a or a light that kind of highlights other other important themes in the book? What do we what do we gain as as readers?
0: I think as readers, um, especially for these great texts, which I you know we started our conversation by saying how relevant texts like the Mahabharata remain to Indian people today. Uh, And if that is the case, then it is very important to reinterpret them because these were texts which were created thousands of years ago. Uh, And I think if we are going to use them as examples, if we're going to talk about things like the Lakshman Rekha, uh, you know, and use them to influence women's life, then we must challenge those notions. Um, So, for example, um, there are many, many aspects of our life today, you know, which has become very—it's very, uh, very strange—but we have seen we seem to be going towards this excess of ri- Brahminical ritualism. So we have things like um, Karva which is being celebrated uh, even in, you know in greater number with greater fanfare, which is you know to celebrate your husband's long life, you must fast. So all kinds of people have you know because Bollywood sort of celebrates this culture. So we have Kanya Puja happening, which is you know a ceremony in which pre-pubertal women, uh, pre-pubertal young girls are worshipped. Um, So this is something that, you know, I used to think about. And initially I thought, oh, well, this is really nice. We're celebrating young girls and, you know, that's lovely. But actually what you're saying is that uh, menstruation is polluting and therefore all menstruating women are, are polluting. And the most polluting... Woman is a menstruating widow, which means that she should, you know, ideally disappear from society. So we have these two extremes of the uh, purity scale in India, you you know, in a sense, the pre-pubertal girl and the menstruating widow, Uh, and so these are things which still anchor our lives today because they were there from the time of the epics, and they have almost been built upon, celebrated by popular culture, by Bollywood, by 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 you know, by the media in certain in certain ways, and so I feel it is really, really important to push back against that, to see the ways in which these did not exist in this sort of form in earlier times. And they were instead, this has been added on as a way to control women, because it's, you know, it's really quite clear that all these texts in in these forms are used to control women they used to control women's sexuality to keep them within simply a marriage state a state which is the only one which is acceptable for producing offsprings. and these various ways in which the patriarchy you know is still today controlling women uh, deciding what they wear what they do not wear what is acceptable what is not acceptable how you appear in public you know how loud you you know, you might want to laugh, how you talk, you know, everything uh, ends up in control. And we will always be brought back to a text like this, like the Mahabharata. So I think it's extremely important at a time where women are finding new ways to discover themselves, um, new ways in which to be women in India, uh, without it being un-Indian or unfeminine. I think it's extremely important to give, give them these examples, to give them this confidence, because, you know, you can't create the world from scratch each time. You need these examples so that you can both your self-confidence and tell yourself you can do even more than this because it has been done in the past. Um, so yes, for me personally, um, to give women an example, uh, you know, which has been reinterpreted for them uh, in modern times, challenging some of the notions which are told to us from the time we are little girls uh, and we are over socialized and, um, you know, expected to fit into certain molds constantly. I think it's extremely important.
1: So with that, Thank you for to our interview with Ira Mukoti, author of *Song of Dropity. Ira, I actually have some final questions. Uh, where can people find your work, and what's next for you?
0: Oh, so I think you can get uh, all my books uh, either on Kindle or Amazon, most bookstores in India. Um, so it's pretty easy. Um, and my next work, so I'm I'm back to history. Um, in fact. The Song of Draupadi was a was my first book. It just wasn't published last year, but I wrote it many, many years ago. Since then, I've been writing history, um, and so my next work looks at the 18th century uh, in the district of Awadh which today is UP, Lucknow, Faizabad, and looks at the Nawabs of Awad and the Begums of Awad and the way in which they were able more or less successfully to stand up to the British at the time when the British was taking over that whole region and the sort of culture of Lucknow that came about because of this violent interaction and the role of the women in creating it.
1: So, you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R.I. Gordon. That's N I C K R I G O R D O N. You can go to AsianReviewOfBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. You can find Kyle's author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. Miriam, where can people find you?
2: You can check out my ongoing research and written work at mariamheather.com. That's M-A-R-I-Y-A-M-H-A-I-D-E-R.com. Or you can find me on Instagram at mariamheather19.
1: The Interview Books podcast is on all our favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends. If you want to continue to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week, join us for interview with K Chatterjee, author of Indians in London from the Birth of the East India Company to Independent India. But before then, thank you so much, Ira, for joining us today.
0: Thank you so much, Nicholas. Thank you, Mariam.